Hello and welcome to the Turned On Podcast. I'm Angelique Nori and my husband David and I have made it our mission to break the darkness by flipping the switch on the four most important areas of your life in health, relationships, business, and in faith. And sometimes the light in the world and in your life can go dim, either from the intrusion of technology or simply because society is so driven by instant gratification. It's our mission to help people see that we're hardwired for connection and that the best things in life come when we turn on the light to see with new eyes the opportunity that exists just a flip away. So if you're ready to stir your spirit, open your eyes, and profit in all areas of your life, then let's get turned on. Here we go. All right, hello and welcome back to the Turned On Podcast. I'm your host, David Nori, and as usual to my right is Angelique. And um, I'm here. How you doing, babe? I'm good. good. My neck is stiff. I slept funny. Okay. Well, you ready to go? <laughs> I'm ready to go. <laughs> All right, We're guys. Ready. Hey, you know, we have so many people that we talk to on a regular basis, people that we lead on the Rise With Intention call, people in our extended friends and family. And what we have for you today... This is powerful. Now, don't get me wrong. I feel like all of our podcasts are powerful, but today is a little something special. And I think it's going to touch a lot of you because when you guys tell me and Angelique your stories, like they, they rest on our hearts. They rest on our spirit. And some of you guys have been through a lot of pain, like a lot of pain, some heavy duty things. And when you confide in us and tell us these things, we're always looking to bring you hope. We're always looking to bring the light. That's what Turned On is. It's bringing light back into the places where darkness has crept in. And so for some of you, particularly, you know who I'm talking to right now. We know your stories. We feel your stories. But there's every single person out there has probably been touched by some type of pain or tragedy. And the hard part is how do we get past that? Sometimes it's a sickness it's a death. We know with COVID, it's depression, um, suicide, substance abuse. These things are rocking the fabric of our, of our culture and our families. And we need light. We need answers. And today we're going to bring that to you. We have a special guest today, Mark Negley. And Mark is the author of an amazing book. The book is called Survive alive and thrive. Now I met Mark by just chance encounter. And the first time I heard his story, I was like, immediately, this has to be told to the masses. This has to be on the turned on podcast because there are people out there who need to hear this. So without any further ado, Mark, we want to welcome you to the turned on podcast and thank you for being here. Hey, thanks guys. It's great to be here. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Just had lunch with him the other day. And we did so have I, lunch I'm with him the other to day. Hear, hear him. Yeah, let that, it rip. So that was great. Your daughter's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. We are uh, we are ones to get right into it because I know you're somewhere right now in your treadmill. Maybe you're walking. Maybe you're in a quiet spot in your house or you're outside, and you want to know what's in it for me. Well, we're about to tell you, Mark. What is your turned on moment? Well, you know, my turned on moment uh, is is one of those. If you weren't there. To experience it yourself, it, it might be hard to believe. At least that's how I think about it as I reflect. But in 2015, I had been um, 
I'm a, a guy who suffers kidney stones periodically over the last 20, 30 years, sadly. Um, and I went in for a routine checkup and doctor thought that there was some funny things going on, demanded some tests. Um, uh, called us in, my wife and I, three days later and gave us the look in the eye um, saying, Mark, there's no easy way to tell you this, but you have cancer. Now, nothing quite prepares you, even though this is not unusual. Obviously, millions of people are diagnosed with cancer. Um, but when it happens to you, it's, it's a, it's a ground-shaking, life-changing moment, something that uh, is kind of a before you got that news and an after you got that news type of thing. So um, he proposed um, a variety of, of uh, options to address it, uh, chemotherapy, um, surg surgery, and or uh, um, radiation implant seeds, and gave me a week to think about it. A week later, um, the Thursday, went to bed knowing that I had a conversation I had to have with the doctor at 2 o'clock on Friday afternoon. And at 4 in the morning, I was awakened kind of by this restlessness, right, where I kind of woke up, opened my eyes, anticipating an unknown, and something remarkable happened a voice, the voice of God, the Holy Spirit, audibly said, you will be healed, and then I will reveal your commission. Hmm. Well, <laughs> it, you know, I, I had to sit up in bed, swing my feet over to the side, and I'm thinking, boy, I, I must be groggy, or, uh, you know, what, what's happening here? And the voice again repeated, you will be healed, and then I will reveal your commission. So I did what any normal person would do is I jumped out of bed, checked the alarm to see if somebody was in the house, if the windows were open. You know, ultimately feeling at once amazed, blessed, and comforted, and at the and and at the same time uh, confused. Right? I went into the bathroom and threw a little water on my face and uh, went in and. Uh, to my home office and, 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 and prayed and, and paced and uh, uh, just kind of tried to work this process out. And um, the next morning, uh, well, actually, I went back to bed about an hour and a half later. And at a couple of hours later at seven o'clock that morning, I woke up and uh, while I'm taking a shower preparing for work, I had this crazy compelling notion that I had to read the book of Acts before going to work. And it was a big meeting. I texted my boss and said, um, listen, I'm, I might be a little late. I was uh, at a board meeting and I was presenting the numbers. I was running the revenue side of this particular business at the time. And um, uh, as I read through Acts and it's a long book, you know, chapter seven, chapter 10, chapter 15, chapter 18, I'm thinking, what am I doing? And then I thought, well, you know, God, God has spoken to me. I've heard his voice. Maybe you should keep reading if that's what you feel like you need to do. So I get to chapter 20 and this is uh, the story of Paul um, uh, talking to his church plant, um, friends in, in 
uh, modern day Turkey, right? And they're trying to talk him out of going back to uh, uh, going back to Jerusalem. Well, he turns to them and says the following quote, which is verse 23 in chapter 20. He said, I know that hardship and even prison may await me, but my life means nothing to me. The only thing that matters is to finish the race, and the race is to complete the task of testifying to the grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ. It was as if at that moment, it's like, okay, do we understand the deal here? Uh, and it's hard to explain, but I, I got down on my knees. I thought it was a Charlton Heston thing. Should I say something like, the covenant has been a great... No, I was just like... Okay, it's a deal. I mean, I, I felt so trite. I mean, if so you'll you'll heal me, and then I testify to your grace for the rest of my life. And it was kind of like a little pat on the head. Sure, go ahead, get to work. You've got it. Right. I go to work. Um, two o'clock in the afternoon, the doctor calls, and he says, "Have you made your decision?" Right. And I thought, oh, gee, I forgot. I had to have this conversation. So I said, yeah. Um, I don't think I'm doing anything. So a little pause from the doctor, and he says, um, "No, I don't mean today. I mean, I mean, have you chosen radiation, chemo, or or surgery?" I said, "No, I understand what you what you mean. What um, I mean, I think I'm I'm thinking healing." <laughs> a little longer pause on the other side of the phone, right? It's like, oh, oh. Um, and my urologist, good man, right? He, you know, and, and and obviously cared about yeah. stopping this before it metastasized. It had been verified at Johns Hopkins. This was a legitimate, uh, significant concern. Right. He said, "Okay, so, uh, so you thinking naturopathic or homeopathic or an experimental healing in Europe?" And I was like, "No." And at this point, you're talking about that moment. Deep yeah. breath. I'm thinking God, long pause on the other side from the doctor. And uh, he says, okay, uh, this is, I know you're under a lot of pressure. This is a very serious situation. You need to come in um, to the office and sit down. We need to talk about this, right? So I agree to come in and my wife and I go in and we spend, um, effectively an hour or so with my telling him, listen, God has promised me healing. I, I can't explain it, um, but I trust him. So let me that's stop you right there. Let me stop you right there because I want to unpack this and I know what's coming and I know it's important, but I want to, because this, this story has just begun. For those of you out there right now, there's, there's two things that have happened. We see the relationship in getting bad news, and sometimes we're all walking on eggshells these days because certainly a friend of yours, a family member of yours, somebody has been touched by a cancer or some type of tragedy, and so we all kind of walk on eggshells. And then the second part is we're all looking or listening for that voice of God. Now, Angelique and I have recently told you about our, our travels looking for a new house, and we're looking for that intuition. Some people are looking for that in their business or in their health journey. And now you hear Mark said, I audibly heard the voice of God. So right. Angelique and I, this is not the first time that we've spoken to somebody. Actually, this is the third time that we've spoken to somebody that's actually heard the audible voice of God. And look, Mark is a, Mark is a lucid, intelligent, uh, very normal person. So this is not somebody 
because I always like to go to the skeptics idea. Oh, yeah, sure, you heard it, right? And look, the thing that attracted me to your story at first is you ignored it at first, which most people would. It was a dream. I thought I heard something. But it came back a second time, and it was so loud that you actually got up, and it was, you were so sure of it that you checked your house, and you checked the doors because you thought somebody must be talking to me. Now, Angelique's mom was diagnosed with cancer, and we all would like to say, hey, let's just let God do it. But this is a specific story, and this is where it takes a twist, and, and that's why I wanted to just recap. Listeners, this is not about what we just told you. This is about a much deeper, deeper mission. And wait till you hear how this unravels here in the next couple seconds. So let's pick it up. So you tell, uh, you tell the doctor, hey, I'm good. I'm just going to do my own thing. Yeah, and, and I think I should just put a caveat here um, to uh, build off your comment. I, I'm arguably the least likely guy to have had this experience, right? First of all, I'm not a saint. I'm not the, the, a, a perfect, you know, straight and narrow, have never made mistakes um, sort of a guy, right? So to think that um, God would choose me um, to, um, to communicate in this way was, was really interesting and, and curious, right? Um, you know, I had been a Christian uh, found my way to the love of God in Christ um, in 1999, at a little older stage in my life. And, you know, my commitment and love for him is deep and, and, and true. And, I, you know, but I'm, I'm a sinner who needs his grace, just like everybody. And um, ultimately, when you have a moment where God reveals himself in such a clear way, um, there's, you can't deny it right there it's just it's just truth as surprising it might be right because you you have a, a mission and so again the mission is is going to take a right turn here without yeah. giving away the plot or what's 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 happened to you mark the mission is going to take a right turn and that's where anybody who's suffered some type of tragedy we don't always know what path god's leading us on we, we may think clearly he's taking me here, and then all of a sudden you're like, it, it's a revelation of some other sort. So you say uh, this was kind of a, a journey that was new to you, but tell us how it switched. Tell us where it took a, a right turn. Well, so to progress, the, the next six months or, or so, um, I continued to meet with the doctor, and they took blood tests and so forth. And it was prostate cancer that I'd been diagnosed with. Um, it was fairly advanced on what's called the Gleason scale and, and so forth. And again, confirmed at a, at a couple of different places. I was living in Connecticut at the time and we had access to some great physicians. Johns Hopkins had gone through the test to verify. Um, but I felt God had given me a very clear direction here. And after seven months, the, um, the, the, the hospital, the, the doctor's um, practice called me and said I needed to come in and I need to release them from responsibility since I was refusing the treatments that they felt were necessary and that I was putting myself at great risk. So it, it, with hesitation, I agreed to undergo a second comprehensive biopsy, which typically you don't do within a year because it can, it, it, it can cause metastasization of the spreading of the cancer. Um, but 
since I was refusing and they wanted to know how far it had potentially advanced, I agreed. And again, a few days later, I got the call, please get your wife on the phone. And you're holding your breath at that moment because honestly, in the world, you don't know what he's going to say. It's, it's worse. It's gone someplace else. We're picking, you know, instead, the phone call, I knew where it was going because the first thing he asked is, have you been seeing another doctor? <laughs> I said, no. He said, have you been seeking other treatments? Did you start? To, and I said, no. And he said, well, you know, we can't explain as the darndest thing, but there's no cancer. We, we, don't, we don't understand it. Uh, maybe you should come in and have another test. And of course, you know, my wife cried in tears of happiness. And I was like, yeah, you know, I know what happened. And no, I'm not coming in for another test. Yeah. Um, ultimately, uh, here, that was in 2015. We are going on six years later. And I continue to get a comprehensive checkups. I live in the Nashville area here in Franklin. And uh, Vanderbilt is a world-class place and their urology group has gone through me every way they can. And, uh, yeah, there's no cancer. So, um, As, you know, at, your, at this point it's like, Whoa, God, but this, this book, this book survive alive and thrive. My friends, the book is not as much about Mark's battle with cancer as it is about where God took him. This is power. Well, you know, that's true. And, you know, there's an, there, it's an interesting um, uh, paradox here, right? I started speaking about my experience at various different um, organizations and churches and places to share this exciting news that I had trusted God and he had healed me. And it, it led to some really uh, wonderful um, experiences for others who were struggling with their cancer, right? And it's not that God heals everybody. I mean, inevitably, we are all healed um, in heaven, right? But here on here on earth, the question is, what do you do? And so the thought is, isn't this great? I'm living this wonderful life. I've been healed, and I'm helping others who are going through tough times and trusting in God. But you know what? When you do go through these things, it's not guarantee, as you're pointing out, that things are going to go well. So in my case, sadly, um, my wife had been in a high-speed car accident um, that had left her with some neurological damage that had led her down this road of um, depression and uh, clinical depression, and then really struggling to the point where we needed uh, doctor's help to, to, to keep her um, safe. And it was a couple of years of working uh, through that process. And anybody who's gone through uh, struggling with someone they love that has mental health issues, it's, it's a really dark, difficult um, experience for the whole family, for everybody. It's not just the person struggling, although it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to see people um, struggle in this way, right? And um, we had gotten to the point where Victoria was um, in, a, in, a, in a good spot. The medication mix that we had developed over the course of a couple of years was now a kind of a stable presence, and she felt very stable and comfortable. We were no longer reliant and under doctor's supervision for her. Um, and we were at this point where 
our son was graduating um, from high school, had a couple of scholarships to run uh, cross country and college. He's a dyslexic um, and has learning dis differences that have been challenging for him. So this was the, the uh, a, a really amazing time to celebrate. Um, in then the bombshell, Victoria uh, told me about six weeks before her uh, before the graduation that she felt she she felt fine and was going to go off her medications to lose weight leading into the graduation experience. So if you've been through this and and people who struggle with um, a loved one or themselves with um, depression and other mental health issues. There's this roller coaster of a, of, a, of a challenge. And that is you take medication and you feel better. And then you think, well, I feel better. I don't need the medication. So then you go off the medication and you start, you know, again, to suffer from the symptoms. And then you, go back on the medication and you feel better again. And then I don't need them. So you take, it's this sort of, of, it's a very difficult road to navigate. Well, I knew when Victoria mentioned that she was going to uh, go off medication and she, this was not negotiable, right? I, I was not happy about the idea. I was very concerned, but it was made clear that she makes her own decision. She's an adult and you know, I'm not her dad or her guardian. I'm her husband. So um, over the course of the next six weeks, um, frustratingly and sadly and concerningly, she started to spiral back down to a, a depression. And um, while the graduation weekend was a huge celebration for our son, it was obvious that she was really having a tough time. Um, we returned to Connecticut um, three days afterwards, um, I went off to uh, hit some golf balls. My son was on a training run, uh, it, it, it preparing for his college um, a cross country season. Um, and on the way home, there was a sense that in a restlessness in my spirit that something wasn't right. I couldn't reach her. My son had gotten back from his run and said nobody was home. So he, he didn't know where his mom was. And um, uh, as I pulled in to our home and opened the garage door, it was odd that her car was in the garage bay and Anderson said she wasn't home. Uh, so as I pulled in, um, my world was broken as I turned and saw that she had taken her life um, and here I was faced with the unimaginable, which is, you know, my wife's um, body uh, hanging in the garage. Um, so what do you do in that situation, right? I shriek, um, jump out of the car, I try to handle it. My son hears me shriek and runs out of the house into the into the garage and sees me struggling with his mom's body. And he, of course, gasps in horror and backs off. And I, I, you know, I tell him, stay in the house, get me a knife so I can cut the ski rope, et cetera. And, you know, long and short of it is, uh, 
you know, by the time the paramedics arrived, um, we called 911, of course, and then the police, as they pushed me away um, from her body, which I had placed on the garage floor, the uh, fact is I was kind of crawling around on the, on the garage cement floor on my hands and knees like a wounded animal, right? I, I did, you know, the bro there is the brokenness that I was experiencing at that time was more profound than I can really put into words. And a paramedic showed some grace and came over and helped me up and kind of led me into the house. And, you know, the, the experience was such that now I had a decision, right? Where do you turn in moments of ultimate, unimaginable, comprehensive brokenness? Well, let's, let's, this is perfect, okay? Because we just spent the first half of this show unpacking Mark's story, and this is important. The second half of this show is going to be about your story, the listener, and how Mark can help you. And that's why it, it, is, it is from this point on, and, and then reading your book and reading that moment that you just described in the garage, um, whether it's that moment or with Angelique, with her mother, or so many people losing a child that we know that, that are on this uh, journey in our, in our turned on journey with us, you called it a reluctant journey. And I think, you know, that moment when you were broken on your knees, this is where those people who have been broken, like Angelique, when her mom passed, a mom who raised her and her, she was an only child, or my friends who have lost children, even my mother who lost an, a, a brother before me. Um, and, you know, 50 years later, my mother's worried about this, and she's, she brings it up all the time, her, her child that passed. On the floor, broken. In your words, this was a reluctant journey, not one that you would have scripted. Because you're, here you are thinking, God just healed me from cancer. The world is great. I'm going to help other people who have been diagnosed with th these terrible uh, diseases. But it was a brokenness that you can't imagine. And this is where your journey starts from, wow, it was not what I had thought. Here comes the right turn. Yeah, it's it. it it, it's true. The, the the next you know week or two was just coping with the experience, right? Um, you know, you're trying to just make it from one day to the next, right? In some cases, one moment, one hour, just to the next morning. Let me sleep. I ended up being able to sleep really only until about three-ish, and at that point memories and images would pop into my head. I had to hop up and I would run out to a park. Nobody there, dark in uh, my town in Connecticut. And, um, but I wasn't alone. And, it, it, you know, I, I felt his presence. And during those early morning, midnight, middle of the night runs and walks, you know, I prayed, I cried, I talked, you know, well, let, me, let me ask you one quick question, Mark, because dealing with Angelique and some other people, I've, taught, I've had people recently say who have lost a husband or lost a child say, I was mad at God. And I know Angelique, she, she physically wanted to punch a wall. She, you know, so before you go in, I just want to talk about that moment because you said you knew somebody was with you. Was there ever any anger? Did you deal with it? Did you say, why would you put me through this? 
No, no, that's not. I, I think that's a, a for me that's a worldview question. That's a a, a a faith concept question, right? So, I mean, for example, even to rewind it a bit, when Victoria was struggling with mental health and was in that car accident, and the idea was never God. Why would you do this, right? The idea was. Um, God, please help us through this. We need you now more than ever. And I consider the, the, the perspective that is God is responsible for everything. And therefore, when I have bad things happen, he did it or he allowed it is not a, a, a faith perspective that resonates with me. Right. I don't, I don't see it that way. Um, I believe that, you know, we're in a world that's broken and God has promised us he'll never leave us and he'll always be there no matter what. And in fact, eternal life through the grace of Jesus is uh, pretty definitive in that respect because last time I checked, the statistics say 100% of us die. Yeah. So inevitably, you know, th this is not a hang in there and um, if I'm really good, you'll let me never die sort right. of thing. So it's a matter of if and when. And as the world, which is broken and throws all kinds of, of curveballs and tough things, and it, 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 we're not guaranteed justice, we're not guaranteed, you know, uh, uh, money, we're not guaranteed happiness, we're just guaranteed that no matter what happens, he'll be with us. So for me, the experience was not, you know, shaking my fist at him, right? Yeah. Um, why would he have healed my cancer? And then um, why would Victoria's uh, suicide have taken place is not in my pay grade, right? right. That, but you, but you, underst you understand that part. And I think that's why, that's why you're here doing this work is because that, that would probably be like you have a, a very strong walk, what you just spoke about, a worldview versus your faith group view. And I'm sure you've encountered other people in your journey that said, well, I don't get that because I just feel anger or, and that's where you're trying to really help the healing. You know, when you're talking about not only surviving this initial part, where we're going to go back to the park, then becoming alive and then actually being able to thrive again, being able to live out those rest of your days here on earth with, with a degree of happiness where it's not just um, in this pit. Well, and it's, it's a great point and it's, and it's true. And I'm not suggesting that my perspective is, is the perspective. It's just my perspective and my experience and how I understand and how I experience God. Okay. So let's go back um, to that, um, that, that park, that moment where you were alone three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, and then there was some sort of revelation. Yeah. Well, you know, as I'm, as I'm, as I'm walking and talking and, crying and asking, right? And by the way, I asked him some pretty tough questions, you know? Why is the why? How, you know, how can this be my journey? What, what you know, is she okay? Do you have her in your arms, right? I mean, these are not, I'm mamby-pamby walking along saying, oh, okay, I guess that's the next thing. I mean, this is painful, right? Mm -hmm. But the words started to form in my mind, which were greater than that. I am greater than that. And as, and then I would say, what do you mean you're greater than that? And this is not audible. This is just, I'm wrestling with um, th these feelings that I'm sure are being provided to me, these insights, these words directly from my maker, 
right? Yes. Ultimately, I, I sit down on the park bench and over the course of a week, I start writing, He's, I am greater than cancer. I am greater than suicide. I'm greater than mental health and, and depression. I'm greater than anything. I am greater than the world. I am greater than that. So I'm like, wow, that is just such inspiring insight in the midst of this pain. So I write a eulogy, which is entitled Greater Than That, which is featured in the book. And ultimately, it, it, it talks about understanding that, um, that we're, the world and the enemy want to use tragedy for, um, in a, as a weapon and a damaging uh, sort of a capacity, right? That, but, you know, God is, is greater than that. We're not going to be victimized by refusing to talk about what really happened. We're not going to be further uh, stigmatized by, you know, hiding and thinking that this is, this is wrong or there's something to be ashamed about, right? This is life. And ultimately, God is greater than that. We're going to celebrate how we lived and the moments of love and experience that we, that we shared. Um, we're not going to dwell on um, the, the, the difficulties, the challenges, and the, and the traumatic, tragic end to her life, but the wonderful full life that she lived as a mother and as a wife and as a sister and a daughter. I mean, she's a wonderful, amazing woman. That is what God compelled me to focus on. And, and, I, and I love that because when we spoke the other day, you said the exact same thing at that moment. You said the idea of guilt is the work of the enemy, and that will victimize you uh, moving forward if you don't have the capacity to deal with that angry worldview of God. If you are irrational and you constantly are thinking about anger, um, and instead of being, you are offered, you said he's offered in his presence and the presence of God. And then we start to talk about the healing process. And not only for, for what you were speaking on, and you started to form this and said, maybe this is something that I should share with other people. Right. And then the book comes about, but then there's the process now. Because you say that the, the, the grieving model that was formed was a grieving model that was um, – in science, like what is it? It's a five-step process, the grieving model. Is that what it is? Right. That's, it's typically known as the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief model. Okay. Right. Now talk about what that was for and, and how you wanted to say maybe that's not what I'm going through. So in, I sought counseling um, and as, as did I brought my son into that same process, uh, both individually and together. And, you know, the, the, what I'm sharing is not the only uh, element of finding um, it healing and joy. It's a part of it, right? But in the, in, in the counseling process, there's a, a concept called, again, the five stages of grief that was written about by a well-known Swiss psychologist, 1969, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, called the five stages of grief. And those stages are denial, anger, um, bargaining, um, depression, and then acceptance, Right. So it, it, what's interesting is it didn't resonate with me. It didn't make sense. So I started 
talking with other people. Um, a few months later, I started a grief group um, at our church that was uh, popular and well attended. And I ran that for a few years. I started interviewing folks and I've now interviewed hundreds of people over the last four or five years who have gone through different loss experiences, including, you know, parents, children, siblings, spouses, good friends, um, and or experiences like Alzheimer's where your parent is still here physically, but no longer is there because they don't recognize you. That's a loss. You know, struggling with mental health uh, in the family, divorce, financial catastrophe, right? People, one, one fellow that went to prison um, uh, for uh, some trading, um, uh, for, for illegal trading and found that gave him the opportunity to reassess his life, right? Many different ways that we, um, that we go through this. But what's this similar is nobody I mean, nobody said the five stages worked for them or that they understood it. So I did some more research over the course of this process, talking to professionals, reading and so forth. And it turns out that it wasn't even designed for loss. The five stages that she wrote about in her well-known thesis in 69, this is 50 years ago, right. was designed for people who have been diagnosed with a terminal illness and had three to six months to live, right? It was about people who had been given that diagnosis, not somebody who had lost a loved one in that process. So if you think about that, there's a, a, a huge disconnect. And for me, ironically, having been in the chair when the doctor looks you in the eye and says, you have cancer, I get it. I mean, I understand that idea. And even though for me, it was not terminal, right? I mean, right. we can get this. It won't right. kill you, he said, which to me was a shocking comment, frankly. Right. It won't kill me. Um, but in the context of loss, a completely different um, uh, experience and response, right? right? So ultimately, um, you know, I, I, I want to tie back something that, um, that happened at the end of uh, my discussion with, with uh, God, that verse from Acts, where he said that my commission was to testify to the grace of God. Yeah. Well, following Victoria's funeral, her service, um, and the eulogy greater than that, I started receiving dozens of emails and phone calls and texts, and almost all of them said, thank you, in your time of brokenness for testifying to the grace of God or to the, to the grace of Jesus or to the mercy and to the greatness. And I thought, Oh my gosh, this entire thing I had wrong. I thought that that verse was given to me in the spirit of trusting and testifying about his grace and my being healed of cancer. That was not it. It was about, as evidenced by these emails, texts, and phone calls, it was about testifying to his grace in a, in a, a much more challenging set of circumstances. So it was, it was a revelation to me at that point. It was like, oh, my gosh, now I get it. Now we need to talk about his grace in most 
unimaginable circumstances, which is when you've lost somebody that you love dearly, and yes. now what do you do? So the healing in the initial audible voice of God, I will heal you, and then I will give you my assignment. It might the cancer part was the first thing, but the healing was the healing of your heart, the healing of your of your of your pain from the loss of your wife. And the assignment was to take that healing and bring it to other people who are in the same spot. And, and you said this, um, sufferers become comforters in the service of Christ, which I love it. Sufferers become comforters in the service of Christ. Yeah, that's a, that's a quote from Billy Graham that, is, uh, that starts the, the, uh, one of the final chapters in the book about pursuing joy, right, that is God-provided. And his quote, again, the sufferer becomes the comforter in the service of the Lord, is this model idea that applies to every single one of us, right? Number one, Christ modeled by suffering unimaginably as yep. he was whipped and then crucified, right? And then did that for us. And now what do we do? We turn to him for comfort, you know, because he gives it so freely out of his love, right? Yes. But all of us have this opportunity. And, you know, frankly, I refer to it as a reluctant platform, right? Yes. It's a reluctant platform. It's not the path I would have chosen. Believe me, if I was writing my story, uh, it, arguably none of this would have happened. But that that's not, it's not my story to write it's my story to live and to experience i think that's i think that's a very important point because certainly right if you were writing this the first that going back to that question why me how did this happen what did i do is guilt right did i do something to deserve this is this something that is this i mean the the right. non-believer the immature christian uh is this god's revenge and we know god is not a revengeful person this is not something that he would force on anybody um, and, right. But we need somebody, obviously, to blame. We want to look for answers when answers don't seem like they're there. And so yeah. that's yeah. where your story is, is compelling because if we could I, – I, I dare say I don't know, but you don't want to speed up the process, but to help understand it and where God fits into this grieving process is something that all of us will have to, at some point or another, plug in. That's why I believe your, your work is important. Well, thanks, David. You know, I would say – you know, to comment a little bit on your, on your comment, I'm not, I've met a number of people, as I've mentioned, I've really committed my life to talking to people who have gone through this um, type of, of, of loss experience. And I've met many who are mature in their faith, right? It, it's not necessarily an immaturity that dictates you're struggling with God. Many who are mature but when this stuff happens, it, it's, it's the point of impact is that a, a bomb, you know, hitting the, the middle of your life. And it, it, it's only understandable that we struggle, particularly in the early stages, to um, just grapple with and, and make it from one, one step to the next. And sometimes... You know, sure, anger is is a completely understandable response, right? I mean, I was angry when my wife, um, when her uh, depressions, but I wasn't angry at her or at God. I was angry at the depression. I was anger. I was frustrated that I couldn't stop this invisible enemy, this mental health depression disease, right? I mean, it was just oh, that's but, good. Well, that, I, it's good because the invisible, the invisible enemy. 
It, you know, like you, we direct what you just said is directing our anger. It should, should I, the, there's guilt, there's directing your anger, but this is an invisible enemy with depression, much like what we, cancer is an invisible enemy that we're like, why can't I just take this out and fight it? And and Angelique was going through that a lot with her mother. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's, I think that's great insight, right? I mean, ultimately I think it's okay to be frustrated or mad at at cancer, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's fair to be upset with a lot of things in the world that attack us. Right. But I don't think that that's, I think it's misdirected if you're saying, God, this is your fault quite the opposite, right? And let alone, how silly would it be that you would look at a parent or a loved one and say, you know, I'm really, I'm really angry with you because you have cancer. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a ridiculous thought, right? It's, yeah. it's the, the process. But th- this kind of led me to um, reassess how this works. And the Survive, Alive, Thrive book is about navigating your journey from loss to hope and to happiness and ultimately joy. And it rewrites the idea of five singular emotional stages that are linear, right? That you go from denial to anger to uh, depression to it's, yeah, I mean, it's just no, right? Everybody in our conversation um, Angelique was explaining that she had many, many emotions swirling around as she was struggling with her mother's loss, right? Oh, totally. And that's universal. It's common, right? Mm-hmm. So survive is the first stage of these three interconnected, not linear checkboxes, but interconnected stages. And the first stage is survive when you are literally just trying to get from one moment to the next in the in the close proximity to your loss. Can, it, can, you, can you let Angelique explain that? Because I want, I want you to kind of do a little bit of, of work here because I know you work with people in your workshops. So when, when Angelique, when Mark says survive, that, that first couple of days, because our, our, our child, our, our middle child, her first birthday was the day after her mom's passing. Oh boy. We spent 30 days in a hotel going back and forth, knowing what was the ultimate. So it, it, was, a, it was a long arduous process it wasn't something that happened quick mm-hmm. so tell mark what your experience was because i want him to work with you kind of one-on-one here with the survive aspect oh well i mean i just remember the surviving aspect was is really about like you said it's just i'm just right now i'm just existing um to make sure that i'm maintaining the zones that i'm called here to steward and um you know those zones were like okay feed myself try to sleep right. something you know some remnants of sleep, you know, on my own, um, still be a wife and a mother, but primarily my job was the caretaker for my mother who was passing through. Um, and then of course business. So it's like all, it was just literally like, what, what, what can I do today is just the bare minimum in these areas where I need to survive. So does that sound familiar, Mark? Oh boy. That is, uh, first of all, I would say to anybody listening and Angelique directly, right? That our loss experiences are intensely unique and personal, mm-hmm. right? So it, 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 you have your own set of variables from a personal experience standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. Things that you've seen in your life, your personal journey, your worldview, your faith, the things that have happened to you and your personality traits and how you're wired, right? Kind of this goulash, this personal uh, blueprint, right? Your identity. 
And at the same time, having interviewed so many people, there is a common thread amongst all of us that we have similar sort of experiences. And in the survive stage, I described the nature of the survival life stage journey as atomic, emotionally atomic in nature. So, you know, you, you just described it perfectly, right? You've got emotions, you've got um, response, you've got life task responsibilities that require that you feed your kids and that you pay your bills. And it's, you know, but in the meantime, these emotions and these responsibilities and life tasks all exist simultaneously. Yeah. Right. And if you think about an atomic model, you know, that symbol with the atoms and protons and neutrons flying all over, right? Imagine that there were 10 ping pong balls and they illustrate in, in this case, metaphorically, the different emotions and, and, um, uh, life tasks and responsibilities that you're struggling with. You put those 10, uh, ping pong balls into a goldfish bowl in a confined space immediately following the loss of somebody and shake it, they're colliding all the time. I mean, there's all kinds of yeah. fallout being generated from that, mm-hmm. from that banging around. But over time, did that, did you feel like you were finding a little more emotional elbow room to process some of the things that at totally. first you were just struggling to deal with? Yes, totally. Over time. And, um, and when I say over time, it's, it's really interesting because you asked that question and I know you go over different things in the book where people will give you the look and, you know, and all this stuff. And, um, I remember specifically just the amount of times people kept saying it will get easier. And I was like, I don't know if that's the right word. And, um, you know, and, and I know you, we go to thriving states, but I don't want to ever say that it's easy. I just think that it becomes more manageable because you adjust to a different kind of normal of the absence of your loved one. It's never easy for me to accept the way she left this world. It's not easy for me to remember her suffering. It's not easy for me to reflect on those memories. It's not, it's not easy for me to be awakened uh, by the haunting idea of what, what she went through. Um, None of that really ever got easier. I didn't like kind of go, yeah, you know, it, it, you know, it's not like, it's not like a wound that eventually heals up. It's just, it's a gaping wound that you, you become tolerant of, um, over right. time, in my opinion. And, um, you know, I just specifically, you talk about these atomic atoms, these, everything just kind of moving around. And like you said, bouncing off, just, they start to bounce off at, you know, a little bit lesser of a frequency, you know, over time you, uh, can stretch out a few days where it's, it's not so heavy and not so burdensome. Um, well, you know, that, you know, that's a perfect ex- example of, of why a linear checkbox emotional progression, it doesn't apply to someone who survived uh, the loss of a loved that's one. bananas. Yeah. That's- yeah. I mean, for example, there was a woman um, who I interviewed who lost tragically her five-year-old son and uh, her father um, killed her his grandson and her her son coming around a snowbank in their in their driveway didn't see him wow um and somebody that told her hoping to try to bring her comfort um don't worry you're young you can have more children this you won't even remember this in five years i mean can you imagine that 
right? Which of course was a deeply painful thing for her to hear on the heels of losing her son, Peter. But the, but the point is, um, how preposterous is it that you, Angelique, would um, sometime get to a point where you'd forget your mom and that this, or that I would not remember Victoria's, um, uh, my life with her 20 something years of marriage and, right. and, and that moment of, of loss or that Kayla's, you know, experience with her son. It, it's just, these are the experiences of our lives that are woven into the fabric of our journey, right? Yeah. This is, this is stuff that will always be with us. The question is, when do those emotions become paralyzing or overwhelming? Well, early on, those yeah. ping pong balls, because it's in such a restricted and, and connective time frame to your loss, mm-hmm. are again in this little goldfish bowl. Yeah. Well, over time, that container, that emotional container will be as big as the, like a pod. The, you know, the storage pods that people put furniture or stuff in outside their driveway. Yeah. And if you were somehow able to pick that up and shake it with those same tennis, with those same 10 ping pong balls, they would still collide, but much less frequently than in the goldfish bowl. And then as you progress and you are thriving as I am today, happily married to a remarkable woman that I met uh, uh, two years ago after moving down here in, into uh, the national area. And I have a full, wonderful, rewarding, and blessed life. I mean, I'm, I'm truly uh, a guy who, who is grateful to God for his, his love and the many blessings in my life. Mm. And that's a crazy thing to say in view of the story that I've shared with you, mm-hmm. right? But ultimately, that doesn't mean, even though my container in Thrive is now as big as a hot air balloon, right? And if you can shake the hot air balloon those emotions and those life tasks are still at some point going to bump into each other just much less frequently than in a more confined space emotionally. Right. So if you get the mind picture there, right. Mm -hmm. Anniversaries, um, holidays, certain dates, locations, songs, movies, you know, there are certain things that trigger memories in all of us that go back to the experiences that we've had and the people that we've loved and lost. Yeah. That's okay. Right. That's, that's good. Right. That's, that's not in as it, as it would potentially be understood in a linear progression model. Oh, I'm failing. I'm regressing. I'm back to this experience. Right. Mm -hmm. No, those experiences exist in this contained uh, emotional, um, in environment, which is our life and our, our spirits and our hearts and our minds. And they, they always will. Yeah. Right. So it's how do you mitigate the negatives and the painful stuff and the survival life thrive book is designed specifically to provide healthy steps and um, strategies to help focus on the blessings and to think back. Right. So for you, Angelique, the the most powerful mitigator, right, is to think back and remember the most loving, wonderful experiences that you've had with your mom, mm. right? So yeah. if sadness comes in, it becomes, oh, you know what? I'm going to go. And when it, 
And in the case of the loss of my wife, Victoria, for example, um, my son and I, Anderson, were skiing a couple of years later, snow skiing. And we came to this place. We were at a, a mountain that we had skied in years earlier with his mom. And she had gone through this like out of bounds rope accidentally and had face planted in this huge snowbank and had gotten up and she looked like Frosty the snowman. It was hilarious, right? She was, <laughs> and you know, we all just laughed almost to the point where we cried. It was, she looked so absurd, you know, so she trotted out of there and got the snow off and, and she said, oh, well, you guys have had your fun, but it was really a, it was really a funny moment. Well, here we are years after Victoria has died, right? two years later, and he and I are skiing in this place, and we come around the turn and we stop, and that was the turn that Victoria had Frosty the Snowman, right? Yeah. And the two of us stopped and we said, isn't this where and we looked at each other and we just start laughing. I mean, there's people must have thought we were crazy. Two you know, men um, standing in the middle of a, of a ski slope just bent over at the waist laughing, right? <laughs> Ultimately, you know, they're like, what's wrong with those guys? You know, the answer is no, we haven't been drinking. There's just a wonderful memory yeah. that, you know, we are choosing to embrace and love at this moment that gives us that emotional elbow room so that when the tough um, emotional moments happen, yeah. that we have something to fall back on. So that's that's part of the, the strategic approach one of the strategies yeah. that we share in survival. It reminds me actually, because my mom, you know, uh, we talked every day, texted every day. Um, and for even to this day, I still, I mean, it's been what, four, four and a half years now um, where sometimes I'll be like, I haven't talked to mom or if I hear my phone go off, I'm like, maybe it's mom. And it's just, but it was so frequent uh, when it first happened where I would get a panicky feeling like, oh my God, I have to check on mom. Um, and it brought on immense amounts of sadness of like the permanence of, I will never talk to her again in this lifetime. Um, I won't receive a text from her in this lifetime. Um, and it it bothered me to the point where it I just, I cried every single time I, I would draw back and every every single moment. And I thought to myself, well, how can I turn this into something that not only I can pull through with, but I can also teach my children to remember her? Mm. Because my oldest daughter had a very close relationship with her, even though she was only four and a half years old when she passed. She just has an intense, intense relationship and memory. And I would just say, Ella, I just had a feeling like Yaya would have texted us right now or called us. What would she have said? You know, and we, we would just it's recollect, beautiful. you know, different moments that we would always have with her. So it was the, the only way that I could keep the, the fullness and the freshness of, of memories that were positive to replace the void that I was experiencing of not having that access to her anymore. So that's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. And that is such a great example of how you can um, take what you've experienced and put it into perspective, into context, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that, that 
is an interesting point of view that I, I, I share in, in the book and, and that brought me comfort is that the, the idea that Victoria's sudden death for me was so shocking and unexpected and, and, and traumatic, right? Mm-hmm. Was my worldly limitation in terms of view and understanding. For God, she didn't show up and he was like, what are you doing here? You're not scheduled for another, you know, he knew exactly that she was going to be there. So, you know, ultimately God knew and was there and brought her into his arms and and loved her. Right. And how crazy is it of an idea to think that maybe one of the worst moments of my life was actually the greatest moment in her life. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Say that, song, yeah, say that again. Break that down because I think anybody don't miss that point right there. Mm. Don't miss that point. Say it again, Mark. Well, it, if you've heard the song, I can only imagine by yes. Mercy Me, you know, and there's a movie of the same name written, you know, about uh, the lead singer, Bart Millard's story. Mm-hmm. And the lyric is, you know, I can only imagine. Right. Will I fall on my knees or will I dance or will I, I, I don't know what I would do when I'm in the presence of God. Right. Amen. It's an amazing, amazing movie and uh, a song that's brought me great comfort. But think about it. It's easier for us to envision it when we apply it to ourselves. Oh, man, when I when I when I pass from this world and I then am in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, how, I mean, utterly amazing Mm -hmm. will that be? Well, your mom and Victoria and the listeners who have lost their loved ones, they experienced that moment with God, Mm -hmm. that love. So ultimately, one of my worst moments was finding um, my, my wife having you know, left in such a, 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 a shocking way is really juxtaposed by, if I choose to look at it, imagine, I can only imagine, as the song says, what joy and wonder and love she was experiencing. So my worst moment, her greatest moment. Yeah. I is mean, it, that that gives some different perspective there. Isn't that such a paradox to actually see the, uh, uh, what like it almost illustrates the profound difference between uh, in the spirit world, the the heavenly kingdom and the the kingdom of darkness, because in this well, this world, is the reason that this, broken, yeah. you put your finger right on. In fact, the the reason why um, Christian faith is such a powerful game changing understanding of of the world and of of, of reality and of the universe. Right? I mean, ultimately. Could you imagine, uh, let me put it this way, I can't imagine going through this experience or any of these experiences and thinking that that's it. There's nothing beyond here. It's over, right? Mm -hmm. We lived, we died, it was tragic, it was traumatic. Next, I mean, what a horrible depression, depressing and horrible idea. But we have the truth and the promise, the, the, the promise from God himself who loved us enough to come down, suffer with us, and offer us comfort through this process that gives us the ability to see death for what it is, which is, you know, a, a, an end here, but a beginning with him. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And that is, I mean, yeah. that's just more powerful and amazing than, you know, you can, than I can sometimes even wrap my arms around. Uh, uh, absolutely. And, and in your book, I love the fact that it not only deals with it from, from one person's perspective, but you deal with the healing process and their, their survive alive and thrive process from a very pragmatic point of view where like someone who doesn't know how to treat somebody deals with that because like like angelique just says sometimes we walk around somebody and we don't know what to say and we want to say the right things and out of the kindness of our heart and the best intentions we end up putting our foot in our mouth and really not doing the person any good in terms of the healing process but just the opposite so um if we could just in the last 10 minutes talk about that part how are you supposed to treat a person because there is no handbook on this but you've outlined some really good things here you have like 10 steps let's just talk about two you say the look, and I, and I think the look was a great, mm-hmm. obvious thing because we've all given yeah. a look, but what is the look? I've gotten it many times. Well, well first of all, the, uh, I'll answer that question, but put it in context, right? That for listeners and, and other folks, the, the book is not only just written for those of us who have gone through loss, right? The book is written for those of us who know somebody who's going through loss or a tough experience, and to provide you, think about it. When you get on an airplane and you read the emergency exit, right? You want to be informed. What happens when yes. something, you know, that, that might happen? What do I do? So the idea of helping others and supporting others in a way that is really actually helpful and, and importantly not detrimental is is a critical learning experience for many of us. And um, to hear it from an aggregated perspective of hundreds of people who have been through this. Listen, there's 150 million people, according to WebMD, that are struggling with the loss of someone they love every year, Mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of us. It's not the the three of us. There's hundreds of millions of us around, and that's just in the U.S., right? Hundreds of millions of people around the world, right? Mm -hmm. So when, it's not if, when, you're in that situation yourself or when you're going to um, help support somebody you love, let's try to understand what not to do. And your point is one of those things is people have talked about Mm -hmm. um, the difficulty of getting back into the world after going through something tough and you get the look. So if you're somebody supporting somebody or you know somebody, please don't give them the look. If you've been through it, you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Like you're going through the day and things are actually pretty good and you're involved in something and somebody comes along and stops and looks at you suddenly and says, oh, Mark, how are you? Right? Gives you that puppy dog, you must be struggling and suffering look, which brings you all the way back yeah. to, you know, the, your moments of pain, mm-hmm. Right. Or it makes you feel guilty that actually I'm doing pretty good. I'm having a good day. You know, I mean, maybe yeah. I shouldn't be the way that yeah. you're looking at me, right? Yeah. yeah. And most of these experiences, right? There's another great example, which is something that I have done over the years, which I've learned not to. But that is people who say typically, and again, almost everybody is is making these comments with. <laughs> With, with, out of compassion and a sincere desire to help somebody. But they say, oh, Angelique, let me know if there's anything I can do. I'd, that drove me nuts. Right? Well, <laughs> I was like, well, 
Now I've just shifted the burden on your shoulders. It's like, look, come up with a list and let me know. In the meantime, I'm going to be off playing golf, right? And it's even worse if you do come up with something that you want me to do, and then I'm too busy and I can't do it, right? I had an experience where a guy gave me that, Mark, anything you need. And about two weeks later, I needed to go to the airport in New York early and my car was, you know, in the shop and I called this guy and I was like, Hey, you know, I, I, I really want to be down at JFK or like around six 30. And he stops and pauses and says, why don't you let like get a car service or something? I mean, I don't want to get caught in the traffic, you know, coming back because oh, it's really brutal that time in the morning. And I thought, no, it's trite, right? This is not, yeah. you know, the end of the world, but I thought, no, you said if there was anything you could do, I'm just asking for a lift to the airport at six in the morning, right? Uh-huh. Don't say that. The way to do it, if you're supporting others, is just be present. Just go there. Just be by their side. Yeah. You don't have to provide advice, right? And for Pete's sakes, don't put them on the hot yeah. seat to come up with something for you to do. When- go mow their lawn. When Bring I, them a meal. Exactly. When you said that, I was like, sometimes the most profound thing that I believe that you can do for somebody, because I think back to my times, it's like if I, if someone just did the laundry, you know, right. You know, uh, did the dishes, made dinner, brought dinner, um, got my mail, paid the bills, you know, like little things that just weigh you down day after day. And they compound over time to where eventually, um, you know, you wake up after coming up from air, essentially, and you're like, oh my gosh, I have a burden of all of this stuff to do now. And then that stuff becomes another atomic atom (laughs) that banging against the walls to where you feel, you know, pushed down back into the pit of depression because it's not enjoyable and it's a, a practical item that has just gotten heavy well and then it, he also talks about the normalcy of it too you tell the story about your buddies taking you out to lunch yeah right and and, and you just want to be a normal you know get back to life and what happened there when they when they paid the bill yeah one of the, one of the yeah one of the stories i share is uh, it was not actually lunch we went out for drinks and dinner and this was you know three of my dear christian buddies and we would do this once a month and been doing it for years right and we might miss a month here or there but the point being these are the 2 a.m. friends in your inner circle, guys that you can call no matter what, right? So this was, you know, a month or two after Victoria's death. And they said, hey, let's get together and, and have, you know, our, our dinner night. So we go out and have a, a, a great time, a couple of beers, a steak, and it's, a, it's just really a wonderful night. And at the end, the bill comes and we all reach for our wallets and he, what, they said, oh, no, 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 Mark, you shouldn't. No, no, we'll cover this one. I looked at him. I'm like, what do you mean you'll cover this one? They said, it's a version of the look. It's the least we can do. Yeah. And I said, oh, guys, please. You know, I'm paying my share. We always pay. We always split it four ways. This is, stop it. And they said, well, we just want to help. How can we help? And I said, you're doing it, man. We're just out here, you're being present and we're living together. I was so grateful that they had um, brought me up. Let things be normal, yes. right? Don't, you know, there, there was a, another example of how people are on eggshells that are funny. And I don't know if I even wrote this in the book, but 
the the example is I was playing golf like a year later, like the next summer. And a guy was standing over a putt that was like three feet long and he was having a great round. And he just looked up at us and he, got, and he just said absentmindedly, if I miss this putt, I'm going to kill myself. And then he leans back over the putt and then suddenly he stands up and looks at me and says, oh my God, I am so sorry that I said that. And I thought, I said, it, it, it's, it's no problem, man. Don't, please don't do that. You know, I mean, you, you've said that a whole bunch of times when we've played. It's a euphemism. It might be, you know, insensitive at some level or an inappropriate right. phrase, but I mean, I can't imagine how often people say things just offhandedly as a turn of phrase. And oversensitizing that stuff is another form of, again, bringing us that have gone through brokenness yeah. back to that moment, which I never would have even thought about if he didn't suddenly stand up again and say, oh, my gosh, I shouldn't right. have said that. Well, and that's why I love your book. And that's why I think so many people are, are going to enjoy it and they're going to get so much from it because you have all these different segments that you've brought together. You've, you've, you're rooted in faith. So that's the most important, obviously, right? We have to know that there's a life after this life. We have to know that God isn't the one who brings death and, and disease upon us, but there is hope. So there's the, the faith component. There's the very pragmatic component. Look, these are the things that you have to do. There is going to be a stage where you're going to just try and get some sleep. You're just going to try and get back to normalcy. Then you're going you're gonna to say, hey, wait, I'm alive. And then there's the thrive part. And then there's the also very part, hey, although there's been probably thousands of books and courses and stuff dealing with grief, this is a unique perspective. Like, don't sit there and apologize for saying something like that on the golf course. Don't sit there and say, oh, let me get this bill. It's the least we can do. Don't sit there and give people the look. So you take all these different components and it's like this great handbook to say, hey, nobody wants this book. Nobody wants to have to read it, but we're all going to have to read it because we're all going to experience this at some point in our life. So let me give you a really amazing story of just what it says, surviving, becoming alive again, and then thriving. And I think it's fantastic that you put all these things together in this way. And, and then you're teaching it on it. So tell us about that as we wrap it up. Where can people find you? Right. What are the courses? And, and now you have not only just, this isn't just a book that you're doing, but you have a, a team of people behind you that are going to help promote this. And um, right. this is your life's calling now. It, it is. So, well, I would want to add one point since you brought up the thriving word, okay. right? There's been, um, there has been research done. In fact, a psychology professor at UCLA named Dan Siegel has written about what he calls neurobiological healing. He can measure healing. And he's discovered that through the act of sharing your experiences, particularly from loss experiences, to an emphatic audience, that you experience healing just in the act of sharing. So in the Thrive stage, um, we are proposing that you share your story by giving back to others because you'll experience incremental healing yourself by sharing your story, but you'll inspire others who are going through this to know that they're not alone. So how does that happen, right? Well, the book has 
a Q&A at the end of each chapter, which is designed for small groups to be able to go through it and study with each other and just reflect on their own, you know, personal experiences. But second of all, um, I have founded a nonprofit entity called survivalivethrive.org. And that's available um, for uh, listeners when the, the book debuts, um, when it's released formally on uh, May 25th of this year. And ultimately, you'll be able to go to survive-alive-thrive.org. Again, that's the name of the book with dashes between the words, survive-alive-thrive.org, and be able to join a virtual community to know and visit with people who are in different stages of their own journey and share your story and hear others and experience that healing and go through a Survive Alive Thrive workshop that is specifically designed to help you um, identify where you are on your journey because ultimately the role of survivealivethrive.org is to provide people with the navigation tool that helps them identify where they are because when we don't know where we are and we don't know where we're going then more anxiety and and frustration and uncertainty i mean it makes it worse so finding out where you are and knowing where you're going and how to get there actually eases that anxiety and promotes healing just on that process. So that's what we're trying to do. We're sharing the process, allowing you to identify where you are and plot and strategically um, actualize your, your healing experience through the three stages and then give back to others so that they can experience and be inspired by your story. So that that's the concept I love it. behind what we're doing. And it's a nonprofit entity. It is uh, something, for example, I'm not being paid to run it. I'm doing this 100% of all proceeds from the book and donations to the nonprofit go directly to providing this infrastructure support and experience amazing for uh, people who are going through these things. A hundred percent going yep. back to help those people. And, and we know they need help because as, as I'm reading here on your, um, on your bio here, it says, you know, 57% of Americans have experienced grief or major loss within the last three years, especially what we've gone through in 2020. Um, we know people personally every day that are dealing with these things and yeah. We've just spoken to a guy who the audible voice of God told him that you will be healed and then your mission is to be revealed. You are healed miraculously from prostate cancer. And then what you thought was the mission took a right turn. The mission was to help people survive alive and thrive. So Mark Negley is the, is the author. He is uh, an amazing person who just, has this mission in life that we're all going to need, whether we want it or not. We're all want to know how do we survive and thrive again after tragedy. So I can't thank you enough. I hope the listeners, um, especially those who really needed it, were touched by you today. And uh, I know you're going to be doing great things coming up in thank the next couple of years. Yeah, David, thank you and Angelique for having that, you know me as a guest. I really appreciate it. And my only comment would be for everybody out there, you are not alone. 
There are many of us going through this journey. You know, let's walk the journey together and you can and you will find joy and happiness again. Um, so God bless you and thanks for listening. Appreciate Amen. you again. Dude. Appreciate God bless you too, Mark, in your work. And um, we look forward to seeing you touch a lot of people's lives. Amen. We'll see you next time right here on the Turned On Podcast.